Expressed by callers, guests, and hosts do not necessarily reflect those of the Black Talk Radio Network and Black Talk Media Project. Black Talk Radio is new black media for the new millennium. Trusted have become completely corrupted and inherently evil. When the feast that feeds you starves our father's children. When snuff porn and pedo forms begin to get top billing, rise up. When famine claims millions, when justice gives blind eyes to billions, when the Lord's anger is no longer feared, if his protection is gone and your enemies are near, if you've seen the seas spill over and the mountains shake, break, and fall, if the moon ever turns blood red and you can't see the sun at all, rise up. Peace and welcome to New Abolitionist Radio, a program that seeks to educate, inform, and agitate on the issue of 21st century slavery, hosted by social activist and spoken word poet Max Parthas with New Abolitionist and Actionist Johanna Elia and Black Talk Media Project founder Scotty Reed. On this program, we discuss recent news on legalized 21st century slavery and human trafficking along with projects and people who help combat it. Today is December 14, 2016, on New Abolitionist Radio. Our rider of the 21st Century Underground Railroad is Lawrence McKinney, who in 1978 was convicted by a Memphis jury of raping a woman during a burglary. The victim identified McKinney as one of the two men who attacked her, and he was sentenced to 115 years for the deed. He spent 31 years and nine months behind bars, but was declared innocent in 2008 after a thorough examination of DNA evidence cleared him. McKinney was released in 2009, but he was only given $75 for his trouble. He's now seeking restitution. Our abolitionist in profile this week is Henry Highland Garnett, who was born in captivity in Maryland in 1815. When he was nine, his family secured their freedom via the Underground Railroad. Garnett is perhaps most famous for his radical speech of 1843, an address to the slaves of the USA. In this speech, Garnet speaks directly to those enslaved, urging them to rebel against their masters. And we have provided that speech in its entirety to you at New Abolitionist Radio. You can now listen to the live stream on Black Talk Radio's YouTube page at youtube.com slash Black Talk Radio Network. If you'd like to share a comment or question, call in toll-free from the U.S. and Canada at 1-866-510-9025 or 704-802-5056. Once again, I'm Max Parthas. What's happening, Brother Scotty? So you honor? Hey, peace to you, Max. <laughs> How you doing tonight? Let me unmute uh, uh, Johanna. All right. Hey, I'm just doing how I do, man, just day in, day out, trying to stay focused. That's about it with me. Nothing nothing to report, um, so that's good news. Nothing happening to me personally, so that's good news. 
my life continues to get uh, turned upside down and around, sometimes in good ways, sometimes in bad. It was why I needed some time off last week. Uh, for the first time in ever, <laughs> like ever, my wife and I have a house to ourselves. It's just me and her. There's like all the kids are out the house, and you know the daughter's going through her thing, but my youngest daughter's finally gone out of the house with her family. So it's just me and her, and well, we're doing what grown-ups do, I guess. <laughs> it's a, a unique experience, man, to have raised children for like nearly 30 years, and this is the first time you just you and your wife, you know? Johanan, um, let's get a mic check on you, bro. Say something. <laughs> Make sure you connect it. Okay, I'm not hearing anything from Johanan. He is on unmuted um but um so um where do we start where do we start well this week has certainly been as interesting as any other man i see that you have already uh picked a uh a, a lineup for tonight which is great saving me some time and uh there's some interesting stories in there as well as some of the stuff that i've seen along the way i see john lennon i mean john legend <laughs> wrote a letter to the president uh, didn't Tupac do that not too long ago? <laughs> but, Say okay. that again. John Legend, letter to the president. The private prisoners, of course, are being exposed left and right. But I don't think that that's going to make much of a difference because we've learned now that in this nation of racism, they really don't care about whether you think they're racist or not. Well, I'll address yeah. open round. Yeah, I'll address that when we come uh, to the John Legend thing. There is some value in his letter, propaganda value, anything that calls for um, today's modern uh, enslaved victims of, of modern slavery, hey, if it's calling for their release, then I, I look at that as being good. But we'll get to the details of some of that. But one of the things I wanted to talk about is a recent um, law that was signed by President Obama, CEO Obama of USA, Inc. And, but the 21st Century Cures Act, now y'all may not, um, know how this affects well how does this affect 21st century slavery and human trafficking that we talk about because the some of the articles talking about it it talks about providing funding and other kind of removing barriers to finding cures for diseases but it also has an element to where it will affect slave catchers and how they interact with the public it also uh, also um, affects some other things so what I'm going to do is share a letter that was um, an email that was sent to me I'm subscribed to so many different groups I sign different petitions and whatnot. sign up for email because I have to do that as a news journalist so I can be informed and then therefore inform my listeners uh, but doesn't mean that I'm an actual, you know, due-paying member of any of these groups. I'm just supporting their efforts with a signature or or whatnot. But it says, this is the uh, email that came to me. It says, and this is from, this is from uh, Craig DeRoach, who is the Senior Vice President of Advocacy and Public Policy in their uh, prison, excuse me, their prison fellowship uh, program, I guess you would call it. But this is the email. I have fantastic news to share. Last week, the Senate passed the 21st Century Cures Act with a 94 to 5 vote. Thank you thank you to our justice advocates for sending nearly 2,000 messages 
I mean, that's really not that many messages, okay? Considering how many the billions of people that's online come on or or, or connected uh, through the internet. So two million emails or messages to to uh, lawmakers is in support of this bill. That's not a lot. So, but anyway, it says do in part to your efforts, both the House and Senate, passed the 21st Century Cures Act with overwhelming support. Now the legislation just needs the president's signature. President Obama has said he looks forward to signing it as soon as it reaches his desk. As supporters, now this is why I chose this for to or for New Abolitionist Radio. How does it affect victims of twenty? Could impact victims of twenty-first century slavery and human trafficking on the prison plantations across uh, this nation. As supporters of justice reform, the 21st Century Cures Act is something we should celebrate. Here's just a few other exciting things that will happen, he hopes, as a result of this new law. State and local law enforcement and correction officials will receive training on how to respond to someone with a mental health disorder. A drug and mental health court pilot program will be established in at least one federal judicial district. Such programs, which have already been successful at the state level, allow people with substance use or mental health needs convicted of low-level offenses to be diverted from prison if they comply with a treatment plan. State and local governments and nonprofits can apply for grants to develop alternatives to incarceration for people with nonviolent offenses, including veterans in DWI courts. Men and women in prison with mental health disorders can receive treatment and other services. Prison and jail officials can apply for grants to develop or enhance alternatives to solitary confinement. Thank you for using your voice to advance justice that restores. Again, this is uh, Craig DeRoach, Senior Vice President, sending out this email. My comment commentary on it is I will accept this small measure of reform. Hopefully, we'll get some relief to some people that's on these plantations and being abused and, and what have you. And But I, as an abolitionist, know this falls short of abolition. So I'll continue to push for abolitionist goals, but at the same time, I will recognize that this might, might, because it's too, too much of it requires other people to act because it doesn't require the, uh, let's say, for example, the federal uh, uh, prison plantation overseers it doesn't require them to apply for grants. It doesn't require them to do anything. It just provides the money if they want to. So there's no mandate really there. So again, I can see where it falls short because reform is always going to fall short. But I do recognize the relief that could be brought to victims of 21st century slavery and human trafficking in the United States. Guys? I had a long process of thought going on yesterday in regards to this question about prison abolition, which is where this fits in. You know, trying to get rid of the prisons completely or trying to convert them to something more humane and just. And in its comparison into slavery abolition, 
And I got to say, you know, I appreciate the fact that people are out there fighting and doing these things like this. But as you said earlier, reform is never going to be the answer. And it doesn't matter how much you apply to the prisons in ways of humane treatment. I mean, you could give them Lamborghinis and let them ride around the prison's block every day just as something to do, and it would still be prison. It would still be people enslaved. It would still be the taxpayer footing the bill to have people in cages. So for me, you know, I'm always going to keep my focus on getting people out of these prisons uh, completely, freedom out of the prisons. But while they're in there, they're going to need all the help that they can get. I have a question, um, and Johanan, I, I I don't know what you got going on, bro. Are you there? Yeah, I'm here. Oh, okay. Well, before I read, let me just respond to Max and Johanan, and I want to get your comments. Um, well, I'm going to ask this question to both of you and to our listeners out there who can chime in um, and add to the dialogue if you have a particular anal- um uh, analysis you would like to share or a question you want to ask. But this part right here, where it says that state and local governments and nonprofits can apply for grants to develop alternatives to incarceration for people with nonviolent offenses, including veterans and DWI courts. Veterans, in fact, People with a veteran status, in fact, make mm-hmm. up the majority of the people in prison. But then, okay, like again, like reco- yeah, recognizing that, recognizing that my goal, you, I don't have to explain that to my comrades on the line with me, mm-hmm. that my goal is abolition. But again, anything I can do to undermine the system. So, so should we? And I'm, I'm putting this out there hypothetically. Should people who are abolitionists? create nonprofits and then present their alternatives to prison and get money for it to to help these people. So that I want I'm asking that question of that. Because then at the same time though, we had to beware of the industrial nonprofits where you just have people who create nonprofits to make a living for themselves and not really help anyone. But just on the face of this, on the face of this, should abolitionists perhaps start nonprofits and present their ideals to alternatives to prison guys yes yes i think so i think uh no one is going to be more uh well educated and well researched on the realities of the situation even if um you don't always have the answers and you don't always have the the reality that is the transition space between what is and what you know should be like we're talking about now reform as we discuss on this program all the time you know you cannot reform terrorism um you cannot reform lynching you cannot reform kidnapping you cannot reform torture rape uh slave anything about slavery cannot be reformed it has to be abolished but knowing what we know and even in this case that that we're breaking down right now this is the work and what we've talked about for most of the four years plus that this is this program has been on the air and abolitionists before us for the last 150 years what what has been discussed by the abolitionists most often is the reform efforts of those who are not abolitionists but are reformers or are a part of like you said the the uh, the, the the reform industrial complex or you know that the activism uh, money makers or people that want to talk 
title or positions or what have you. So even if we don't have a perfect land, perfect scenario, the perfect everything set up and all everything is running perfectly and okay, now in the moment, we still need to be in the space. And even if we have other fundraisers, uh, grant writers, uh, I have brothers and sisters right now. Uh, actually, I got a sister here in Kansas City with me that's been talking to me for months about getting with her on creating the type of nonprofit that can take advantage of the grant monies that are out there. So, you know, that's something I have to get more serious about here locally. And then hopefully we can also work with that as far as the Black Talk Media Project, expanding it through, you know, our abolitionist uh, efforts to get the money that's there, which is going to help to block out so many of the pretenders that aren't doing the real thing anyway. Ain't no money left. We got it. And then we know the research. We know the need. We know these people, individuals. We know them personally. We know the struggle. I, absolutely, because I don't want to keep having stories like this. I want our story to be where we're making progress. Well, let me just say this, though. This is not something that Black Talk Media Project would be uh, involved in because we are education nonprofit, and we have, you know, according to our charter in the state of North Carolina, we had to adhere to that. And, and so our radio programming is education, so we're fully operating within our guidelines. But that does not right. mean that we couldn't use this resource to, as we're doing now, putting it, putting the seed into people's minds who are abolitionists to, to, to put an abolitionist plan on paper and submit it for funding and maybe you can get it. Again, we're talking about an opportunity. Again, this isn't going to end the entire system. But do you think it's worthwhile if we could just divert some people from slavery that shouldn't be going there anyway if we can take advantage of this opportunity that seems to be presenting itself. I don't know the details uh, yet, but I do know it was signed into uh, law by President Obama. I do have his audio clip, and I'm going to go ahead and, and run this audio clip of him signing it into law. But those are the questions we're putting out there um, uh, to the people. So I see, no, I mean, it takes $200 to create. Um, well, it depends. Well, yeah, education. You, I, I'm, I, I'm thinking out loud, people. I'm thinking out loud. I'm thinking of the state of North Carolina rules on nonprofits and what possibly would be the classification for creating such a slavery diversion uh, program. And again, this is not something I'm saying that I'm gonna get into. My hands is full with my mission of you know this this media operation but that doesn't mean I still cannot use these resources to promote whatever other people who will come together who can um like you said got put the grant writers together put our abolitionists out there policy writers people who have I mean yeah man I could see plenty of possibilities but again Again, this still falls way short of abolition, but total abolition of slavery. But this is uh, CEO Obama's uh, ceremony today, uh, signing this bill. I confessed, I am I am a science geek. I'm a nerd, uh, and I don't I don't make any apologies for it. It's cool stuff. Over the last eight years, one of my highest priorities as president has been to unleash the full force of American innovation to some of the biggest challenges that we face. 
We'll restore science to its rightful place and wield technology's wonders to raise healthcare's quality and lower its cost. All this we can do. All this we will do. And today, with the 21st Century Cures Act, we are bringing to reality the possibility of new breakthroughs to some of the greatest health challenges of our time. More Americans now die every year from drug overdoses than they do from motor vehicle crashes. We've all got a role to play. These are our kids. It's not somebody else's kids. It's our kids. It's not somebody else's neighborhood. It's our neighborhood. And they deserve every chance. Now last year, Vice President Biden said that with a new moonshot, America can cure cancer. Tonight I'm announcing a new national effort to get it done. And because he's gone to the mat for all of us on so many issues over the past 40 years, I'm putting Joe in charge of mission control. Okay, I'm, I'm going to stop it right there because it's rather long. But the, Thank you. the way that it's being promoted, though, is science and technology, medicine, curing these diseases, but also funding new technology and whatnot. But do, but I just want the abolitionist community out there to know that your efforts has led to them, including funding and alternatives to things like solitary confinement and extending this to the victims of modern slavery again, again, again. Nothing, nothing is, is, um, nothing can substitute for total abolition of slavery. But if we can bring any kind of relief, I feel it, you know, I have to support any kind of relief. So, guys. Um, well, first of all, this is a testimony to the influence of Scotty Reed first and Black Talk Radio Network second, uh, and, reaching all the way up to the presidential desk and bills that are being drafted and signed in the law and things like that. So kudos on that, Scotty Reed, uh, affecting the history of this nation uh, on a regular basis. So that's, that's a wonderful thing. Uh, secondly, I think that it's a good idea to start anti-slavery societies, just as we had just prior to 1793 and the Fugitive Slave Law so that these regional groups can start accessing such grants and funds for the purpose of abolishing slavery. And then once we have established regional groups, we can bring them together as a national organization, a super PAC, so to say, where we can really fight this thing on a very large level using our individual components. There's a lot of people that want to give money. They just don't know where to send it. Johanna? Well, I mean, in terms of what we just heard with Obama's sound bites, it just, I mean, it's just real smooth talk, man. It sounds great that, you know, he wants to unleash the full power of ingenuity and in people's efforts to be able to fix and all this, you know, whatever, man. 
Whatever. I'm I'm just disillusioned with uh what we've seen. You're like we me, know. you ain't trying to hear nothing he's saying, right? Like yeah, yeah, blah blah man. blah. That's all you hear. Yeah, yeah. Come on, man. And you talk he's an old good talking type of dude. Just you know, we make a difference. We're gonna give our full effort. We're gonna do Johanan, hey man, Sorry. you keep going in and out. That could be your microphone might be picking up uh too loud of of uh, your voice or something, maybe just move it an oh. inch away, and that might cure it. I don't know what's going on, but you keep breaking up on us. I don't know, Scotty. Maybe, maybe, maybe I just get worked up right then. I'm sorry. No, it just. Uh, I was just saying it just sounds. It just sounds very familiar to what we've heard. The vocal, the verbal commitment to making these changes to not, you know, not taking no for an answer. I've got to make this change. We're going to get this to happen, and then you know whether it's on the backside suing. Uh, using the Justice Department to sue to keep the, the very things that you say you want to mm-hmm. abolish in place, mm-hmm. or if it's you know putting things on the back burner, if it's creating executive orders and actions and putting all this out there, and then it turns out it's just a study, it's a recommendation for mm-hmm. a committee to research and report back their findings. I mean, man, it's so many damn rabbit holes and so many mazes and so many you know pits full of quicksand that just don't go anywhere. It's one simple thing. I mean, we even mentioned with the John Legend situation with this latest letter that he wrote, you know, he's asking for 36,000 federal prisoners to be included in, you know, Obama's clemency. At 36,000, yes, we'll take 36,000, just like we've taken the 2,000 that's out that, that have been in the program so far. But you're talking about 2.3, close to 2.4 million people. And we know that over one and a half million of those people are in there strictly because of drug prohibition. Right. So... I mean, I just, I just feel like there's so much room for moving into reality. Right. See, if we were talking to President Obama about something that, that had his balls in a vice, had him by his short hairs, and he was feeling the pain, he wouldn't be so interested in rhetoric and promises of what we're going to do to make it better. And, oh, man, we really going to do it this time. Oh, I'm going to really – he would be trying to get his, get his stuff together because it hurts. It, it means the world to him. It means his life to him. So I don't know if that's possible with the politician, especially that high up the line. So as we said before, I just I would. I, I mean, would he on his way out the door anyway. Yeah, he on his way out the door anyway, possibly. And I, I'm I'm saying that right. with all <laughs> with all seriousness. But I right. like Max's ideal of starting. Um, through nonprofits, state nonprofits, everything ain't got to be a 501c3, but I imagine it's going to have to be a 501c3 to access this federal grant money. But I like his ideal of starting modern anti-slavery societies that come up with a plan and an alternative to slavery. If, if I mean that would that's great, and then I'm also thinking about the book, The Art of War, and Sun Tzu saying that if you can use your enemy resources, then you have doubled your own. So what better way than to get the federal government to fund a, a, a slavery abolitionist efforts? I like that idea, Max. It's not my idea, brother. I'm just a student of history, and I see that these are the things that were successful at the time for them under the same circumstances that we find ourselves in. So why not use what's successful? It was a way for them to be able to access not just national funding, but international funding, uh, where people overseas could send in money to, to fund these anti-slavery societies. And uh, then finally, when they eventually brought themselves together as a national movement, it enacted Congress 
to uh, start the Federal Slave Trade Act of 1794, prohibiting American vessels from transporting slaves to any foreign country or from outfitting an American uh, in American ports. So they had some uh, very huge effects because they had the funding to be able to do these certain things. Um, I think, uh, Ross, I see you on the board. You had unmuted yourself, but you went back uh, on mute. But if you had a question or comment, we got a couple of minutes before we take our first break. But uh, anybody wants to jump in with a question or comment, uh, hit star star. Um, my mind is just churning, man. I'm thinking of Nakima Levy Pounds. I'm thinking of um, um, your esteem, our esteemed elder and attorney, uh, Vernelia Randall. I'm thinking Max Parthis. I'm thinking Johanna Elia. I'm thinking, you know, perhaps uh, we do need to formalize and start an organization representing uh, what we have really been doing the past four years, we would call. That's how we make a political party, too. The same way. Once we start getting these organizations, we can build our own political party and stand on our platform with our priorities in order so we don't have to see uh, garbage disposal at a higher level of priority than the freedom of millions of innocent men, women, and children. Right, right. But what I'm saying we got a lot of smart people out there, man, and and you know people who know how to apply for these grants and and securities grants. But wow, man, again, was, times. I mean, I we're living. This is a historic opportunity, really. We've been witnessing a lot of history. We almost got rid of the uh, private prisons, but they rebounded on the election of Donald Trump. But still, man, we're seeing a lot of movement, movement we haven't seen since the uh, 1860s on this issue. When I was in Missouri with Johanna at Missouri Cure and we received the award for New Abolitionist Radio, I met a woman there who said she had six nonprofits. And we talked at that time about how we could start initiating these anti-slavery society nonprofit organizations across the country. So there are people we can reach out to who have a great deal of experience in this. And just the other day, another friend of mine who has established his own nonprofit, Speak Easy, uh, uh, Speak Freely Foundation, told me we could use his nonprofit at any time because he's also an abolitionist. And although it's not an abolitionist nonprofit organization, it is a nonprofit organization at our disposal. I'm just I'm just seeing the history that could could be made and just starting an official anti-slavery uh, because again I'm thinking New York how those people in New York stole our name New Abolitionists and then but they're talking about the abolishment of something that's already illegal human trafficking is already illegal private citizens cannot kidnap people off the street and hold them in bondage that's already illegal so you ain't no new abolitionist what you're talking about has already been abolished and just took her name man and, and, and the New York chapter of the uh, new abolitionists come on ladies Hey, Scotty, I know this is one of our stories, but just briefly, uh, it's good news that you would appreciate as well as Johanan because it's, again, showing the influence of Black Talk Radio Network and New Abolitionist Radio by putting these ideas and uh, uh, these options out there into the universe for people to use. And that is just recently, three people have won a settlement in a federal lawsuit against a probation company. The probation company was convicted of racketeering charges, Scotty. JCS. What? 
somebody yes, filed RICO charges on them. Yesterday. Somebody char- filed mm-hmm. RICO charges. Now RICO charges. They were convicted of racketeering. That's RICO. Uh, I could read. It's not too long a story. If you like, if we well, time, Max, I read let's go. Let's take this quick break, and we'll go into that on the other side. All right, you're listening to New Abolitionist Radio here on the Black Talk Radio Network dot com, and you can see just how influential this network has been. We'll be right back. Since 2008, providing new black media for the masses. Welcome back to New Abolitionist Radio. Uh, Scotty, did you want me to share that with you real quick? Uh, Yes. But let me just put this disclaimer out there. That wasn't my idea. Rico, we all were talking about that. That idea was born live on New Abolitionist Radio. We all were talking yeah, we about that. Yeah, we trying to find alternatives. Like, if we can't get you one way, we got to get you another. So let's make it illegal one way or another. And if you're listening right now, and you're involved in the pay-for-play probation industry, where you're being forced to pay these for-profit probation companies, you have a very high chance now of suing them successfully. And this story comes from uh, Jonice Star Dunham, and it says, an undisclosed amount of money will be awarded to three Clanton residents involved in a federal lawsuit against a private probation company, the Southern Poverty Law Center announced Tuesday. SPLC said Judicial Correction Services threatened residents Rodney Ware, Roxanne Reynolds, and Edward Kylie Williams with jail time because they fell behind on fines from traffic violations and other misdemeanor charges. The settlement, which stems from a 2015 lawsuit, will pay for damages and injuries suffered by the three plaintiffs. Plaintiffs. In 2009, the city of Clanton contracted with JCS to collect payments from those who couldn't pay their court fines and fees. Those who owed money were placed on pay-only probation. Each offender paid JCS a $10 setup fee, then paid $140 at least once a month during an appearance at a JCS office. When people fell behind on their payments, JCS continued to collect its fee and required people to report more frequently to demand the money, effectively extending people's probation and guaranteeing JCS more money. The SPLC stated, SPLC fired a federal lawsuit March 2015 accusing JCS of breaking federal racketeering laws by forcing monthly payments from probationers. 
SPLC said Reynolds told JCS she was struggling to make her pay, payments because she wasn't able to work for weeks or months at a time due to her multiple sclerosis. A JCS official told Reynolds her medical condition was not a valid excuse. SPLC said the company threatened to revoke her probation and send her to jail. Reynolds, who was a technician at an auto parts assembly line, spent four months in jail due to a mis court appearance. There's a little more to it. You can read it on New Abolitionist Radio. Again, the win is that now they have been uh, not only accused, but convicted of racketeering charges. So if you're involved with this probation companies, JCS, in their pay-for-play probation, you should start a suit. Well, everybody who's been a victim of modern-day slavery, these rec- these rackets, because that's what they are. Like, for example, if I was if I lived in um, one of these cities that the Justice Department has already come in and done an investigation, like the Ferguson report, like the Baltimore report, where they point out that it was a racketeering scheme and that federal laws were violated, although they didn't ever charge anyone with the fire federal laws, but they also did not mention what federal laws. And that's what got us that Ferguson report is what we start came to the conclusion, well, what could we charge these people based on what's in this report? This sounds like racketeering. Rico. Let me tell you the, the big kaboom that dropped. The SPLC said 115 cities across Alabama had contracted with JCS, right? See? All of them have canceled their contracts. Every single one of them. See? There you go. So that's why we were saying, I'm not an attorney, Max not an attorney, Johanna's not an attorney, but we know attorneys listen to this network. Okay, and so we put these things out there after we have studied them and and we put them out there. Sometimes it's questions, but most of the time it's factual because, you know, we we then vetted it and hashed it out. So this is a model. We said this and and then uh, I mean, we said this is what needs to happen, that people need to start. Let me say this while it's on my mind. Um, A listener sent me this. um, let me say a contributor or media partner sent me this in the mail and they it's, it, they sent me um, this this letter saying they ran across this United States uh, test book used to miseducate our children and it's a glaring example of why Black Talk Radio and Black Talk Radio volunteers are so important to the mental health of black people but he says take special note of my attached page 168 the system of slavery and it says that blacks he's saying that um let me go to 149 all right but he's saying that what they're saying is that black people or enslaved africans were portrayed as having fun you know during this time i didn't take it as that um he notes that this book is also being used in Charlotte in the public Mecham- Charlotte Mecklenburg school system. But let me get to the page he's talking about. And I'm going to tie this up here for you guys and how it's related in just a minute. But as I was going through this, in this textbook, it talks about, it names, okay, the politics of slavery. But it names, it has a chart. Okay, here it go. Reading table, slaveholding families by number of slaves held, 1850. 
And so, again, when I was doing research on my own family history here in North Carolina, I come to find out it was only 12 families that enslaved Africans in, in this, this county. Uh, it was known by different names over the year, but it was only 12 families. So then when I look at this, I'm saying, you know what? They know all the families that were actually, because you always get this pushback from white people say, well, my family didn't own any slaves and all this and that. But okay, I'm looking at, it is a record of who actually, what families actually did enslave Africans. And so why isn't people seeking reparations by suing these families in federal court? So again, I'm, uh, uh, you know, it just got me thinking uh, so much on just coming up with ways to counter the system, man, by the, by the tools that we have. And so it's great to hear that, um, you know, this human trafficking company, because that's what it is. They making their money off of human trafficking. What's the name? JCS. And now people, yes. people yeah. are people are able to take them to a court of the law and use the law to show how they in violation of the RICO, federal RICO laws, racketeering. Yep, racketeering charges. You can get the same thing on the uh, county of Ferguson just based on the evidence of what they've already shown, blatantly violating constitutional rights. And, you know, from what we've seen so far, we've only seen a few terminations, but really you could start a class action lawsuit against the entire county of Ferguson, the entire county uh, that's involved with Country Club and all of these places that have been shown to be exploiting their citizenry using these tactics. What we've been settling for, and I'm, I'm saying we loosely, but what the victims of these particular areas are are trained to do is just accept the federal government sanctions you know oh we just going to settle that they're going to make this person retire this person ain't going to be able to do this no more or they're going to dissolve the police department like Jennings was dissolved and that's how Darren Wilson ended up in Ferguson Uh, but we just been stopping there when you should be taking all that evidence from those federal investigations and then filing your own individual or class action lawsuits in federal court on RICO charges. We just got our first successful test case. This is precedence. This has set precedence. That's what I'm saying. If you're involved, you need to start now. Just overwhelm them. Every county across America that is involved in this. There was 115 contracts going on in Alabama alone. JCI, JCS is a national company. They're all over the country. And now they've been shown, as a matter of fact, let me read the quote. JCS is no longer doing business in the state of Alabama because cities recognize that its predatory, illegal practices had no place in our local courts. Get them, people. Well, you're listening to New Abolitionist Radio. Scotty, what's what's our next story uh, for this evening? Johanan was about to say something. Go ahead, Johanan, before we jump to the next story. I was just uh, I was just kind of co-signing with with what I'm hearing. I mean, it, it, the thing that's on my mind when I'm hearing about this is um, the way that the federal courts have been jam packed for the last several years under the Obama administration with the immigration cases. You know, this is by far the the most populous 
cases in, in the United States federal courts all over the country. I mean, several hundred thousand federal cases just clogging the court system. So uh, thinking about it from that kind of standpoint, I mean, that's and I see like this, like we're talking about is the precedent set. You know, this is the first case. This is the first one. This is this is kind of the, the first chink in the armor that we can see. So if we begin to wedge into this and begin to flood the court system with these types of cases, because as we've said on this program, we don't have enough time to tell you everything that goes on. That's what kicked off the abolitionist daily. Even with doing two hours a day, there's still more. I mean, I was still culling out, you know, 20, 30 stories a day that couldn't even be told in that two hours every single day. So what we're saying is there are literally hundreds and some days even thousands of cases of constitutional rights violations, of human rights violations, of deaths, extrajudicial murders, of uh, patterns and practices of, of race-based racial profiling, race-based policing, hyper-policing, police terroristic tactics, I mean, on and on. And since these are institutions that are practicing this, and the, like we said, the precedent has been set so we can prove that, you know, these are RICO cases, whether we're talking about the police departments, whether we're talking about vendors that are servicing the corrections industry and the local jails, price of monopolies on contracts, like we saw in Mississippi with Cecil McCrory and, and uh, Christopher Epps, uh, the former superintendent down there, just straight up fixing contracts. Well, what about all those corporations that benefited from that? that never had to have a competitive price, that never had to adhere to certain rules and regulations that were put in place for safety and for for best business practices. They just flew right over all of that because they had an inside man that was giving them the contracts for free as long as they gave him the money in pocket. So these kinds of things are out there and it's very prevalent. And for once it goes from us just saying it and putting out links and talking about it on the program and filling up our Facebook and Twitter and emails and social media everywhere with all the information, put it in the court where it counts. I'm I'm all for it. Word. I remember my last time being in Georgia. I, while I was there, the headlines from the newspapers was talking about their for-profit probation companies and how, if I remember correctly, they had an $80 million a year budget just for the probation companies uh, that was going on there. Yeah, so uh, the next story, let's go ahead and jump to the... Well, I'm sorry. here we go. Uh, Scotty? Yeah, the next story. Let me pull up the next story. Um, this goes, this next story comes to you from the New York Times. And it's titled, After a Crime, The Price of a Second Chance. See, this again shows, in my opinion, this story kind of highlights the problems with reform measures. Because even when you put in diversion programs, if it's dependent upon those people having to pay a fee, again, going back to Ferguson and how they were shuffling them from jail to jail, oh, you got a ticket in this little town. Oh, we was going, yeah, you paid to get out of this jail, but now we got to transfer you to the other jail. Then they go there and then pay the money to bail them out. Oh, now we transfer, you got a ticket over there. You know, and then these people a lot of times don't even have the money to pay. So the same thing with some of this reform legislation that requires, when they say you got to complete, let's say, a drug rehabilitation program, 
Well, oftentimes there's some costs associated with that. And if you can't pay for the program, you can't even get into it. So uh, that's what this article from the New York Times kind of talks about. The title is After a Crime, the Price of a Second Chance. Uh, During the tough financial times of 2011, Marcy Willis, a single mother who raised five children in Atlanta, used her credit card to rent a car for an acquaintance in exchange for cash. But the man and the car disappeared, she said. Four months later, when Miss Willis finally recovered the car and returned it, she was charged with felony theft. As a first-time offender, Miss Willis, age 52, qualified for a big break, a program called pretrial intervention, also known as diversion. If she took 12 weeks of classes, performed 24 hours of community service, and stayed out of trouble, her case would be dismissed and her arrest would be expunged, leaving her record clean. Diversion is not uncommon. Last year, Rebecca Hording, a 36-year-old nurse in Topeka, Kansas, was offered a similar deal for an offense that caused far greater harm. She was charged with reckless battery and texting while driving after she hit a girl on a bicycle, causing brain damage and the loss of a leg. Uh, both women did what was required of them, yet their cases took different paths. The reason? Money. Miss Horton was able to pay 1138 in fees and is on track to have her case dismissed. Miss Willis, who owed 690 at the time, had a harder time. When she paid all but $240, her case was sent back to court for prosecution. By that time, the arrest had already led to her losing her job and then her apartment. At a homeless shelter, she was robbed. Accustomed to earning a living, she began to despair. I felt like I was in a grave or a hole, and instead of digging the dirt out, it was piling up, Miss Willis said. I lost the respect of my kids, my family, and I was too embarrassed to reach out to friends. So what do you do? Though a few people have heard of diversion, a practice is increasingly being embraced as a way for the criminal justice system to save people from from itself. Diversion is intended to relieve overburdened courts in crowded jails and to spare low-risk offenders from the devastating consequences of a criminal record. It mostly applies to nonviolent cases that make up the vast majority of crimes, offenses like shoplifting, drug possession, and theft. There are now diversion programs in almost every state. But an examination by the New York Times found that in many places, only with people with money could afford a second chance. Though diversion was introduced as a money-saving reform, some jurisdictions quickly turn it into a source of revenue. So it goes on to give some more details about the case. Um, there's a lot more, but again, if you can't, if you're stealing because you're poor, let me say, oh, let's say I'm a homeless person, and I go in a Dollar General or Family Dollar or or wherever. And I steal, a, 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 let's say, a couple of packs of ramen noodles. You know, I open up the little case and I just pull out of some individual packs and stick them in my pocket. Because I'm hungry, I'm starving, I'm homeless, whatever. So anyway, I get caught for shoplifting. This may be my first offense because it's my first time falling homeless. All right. So then they're going to put me into this diversion program. Now I'm homeless, I'm unemployed. 
and what have you, and I got to come up with, what, $1,500 to participate? Where, where I'm supposed to get that money from? You see? So that doesn't, do, I get their point. And I'm glad that they did this study to show that this is just how, this just benefits people with money and works against people without. You got to be able to to buy, basically, a second chance. And I agree with that assessment. Guys? Well, we know it's pay for play. <clears throat> and that's where the problem comes in because uh, people who are poor simply cannot afford uh, any of this. So their life just begins to dissolve right in front of their eyes. Uh, just a few days in jail <clears throat> can cost you your job, your your livelihood. And it can affect not only your life, but your family's life, your community's life, your friends, people all around you can be affected by what's going on with this extortion, uh, which is what it is. It's extortion. And it reminds me of the situation that's going on with Louisiana and their bail system, where they've adopted their bail system in Louisiana now, where every major actor in the whole system depends on the bail system to fund themselves unconstitutionally. Johanna? Well, um, as we've discussed, like what you just brought out with this, all the roads are going to lead to the financial aspect of it. People that are poor are most often the least politically represented people. It's that simple. And we talked about this. This was another aspect of the Ferguson situation, which is why we developed the program. The, uh, the segment of this program, Ferguson is America and have maintained that perspective in the years since the death of Michael Brown, you know, uh, several years back now. And we're, we will continue to, to stick with Ferguson is America because what happened there happened for very specific reasons. And those reasons have proliferated throughout this system all over America. Poverty is everywhere in America and everywhere there are poor people these types of this aspect of the system breaks down and victimizes them and pushes them deeper and deeper into the hole. I remember it was a sister who story that was uh, featured in a uh, in a, a news program with uh, Radley Balco, uh, Washington Post writer and uh, author of uh, Rise of the Warrior Cop, where they were riding with the police and looking at all the speed traps going all you know up and down I seventy as you're trying to get from city to city to get to St. Louis. And this sister had gotten caught up in exactly like what Scotty opened this this uh, segment talking about. She had a, you know, seatbelt ticket in one little part of town, you know, and then had a, a speeding ticket five miles over in another little city. But these are all within five miles of each other, but it's several jurisdictions, and they all got their own courts, and they all got their own systems, and their own fines, and their own. They're all autonomous little little leeches. And when she got stopped on this particular day, the police in that area put the book on her because she had a warrant so put her in jail there so she didn't make it to work that day and couldn't go get her kids from the sitter and everything started to collapse that day and she never had any more clothes and so after she served her first two days there they transferred her to one of the other little city's jails because she had that old seatbelt ticket from two years ago took her over there and made her sit mm -hmm. in jail so they booked her in and got her a court date and put her through the whole system so now she's three four days in still the same clothes still ain't talked to her kids nobody knows where she's at her job is pretty much out the window at this point 
Then the next little city has something on her from however many months ago, parking ticket or something. I mean, this is all she couldn't pay any of them. And now they just run her through because they got her. She's in all these places. She missed all this time, lost a job, kids kicked out of daycare, families in shambles. They basically homeless. I mean, you're looking at thousands of cases just in Ferguson in that DOJ report that were documenting people who had parking tickets that started out as $75 ticket and had become $1,500 four years later. And the people serving 30-day segments in jail at a time and then get back out, still don't have the money, got a bigger fine. Like what we talk about on this program can be very specifically detailed. It's real. It's really happening. So this is where we fall out of line with prison abolitionists because we see this system of slavery as far more than just the prisons themselves. This is also the process of slavery, what's going on right here. The other story that we reported here on New Abolitionist Radio where the young brother died over stealing $5 worth of snacks and then was left in the prison to die of freaking thirst because he couldn't get out of the jail. He didn't have the money to get out. They just tossed our lives in the trash over the most meaningless things. Think about it like this, man. If a person can't afford to fix their damn taillight, how the hell do you think they're going to spend $300 on your violation ticket? What do you think is going to happen? It's only it's just one thing after another, and it's pretty predictable that how it's going to occur. You know, you keep destroying people's lives, and you don't think this has doesn't have any temporal consequences. When I say temporal, I mean over time, uh, over three, four, five generations, you have destroyed something potential. And Max, let me add also, uh, right in that same vein. The flip side of it, yeah, we're talking about the poor and the underrepresented, the politically forgotten, the people that probably just give their vote to one party or the other every time, if they can even vote, because you got states like Florida where you got millions who are disfranchised behind these same types of felony situations. So, I mean, it, it, you, when you talk about the poor, that's one side of it. But also we saw in Ferguson, Ferguson is America. One of the violations that they cited in Ferguson also was the municipal uh, uh, justice system was making, giving passes to friends of the municipal justice system. So the same way they're victimizing and destroying the lives of these poor people is the same way they're giving a pass to their buddies. There was a judge that stepped down. He didn't face any criminal charges, but even though I'm sure what he did was illegal. There was a court clerk that stepped down, didn't face criminal charges, even though I'm sure what that court clerk did was illegal. Giving passes to friends and getting speeding tickets, parking tickets, DUIs, people just walking on charges because they know the judge. So this is the epitome of political representation or having no political representation. You go to jail and you face the full weight of the law on your head or you'll never even be in this, put into the system and just doing whatever you want to do. Yohanan, to to your point, see, if I was one of those judges' victims, if I had ever appeared on his docket in his courtroom, right now I would be filing a civil lawsuit against him and that court clerk. That's Again, this is RICO-type stuff. Right. I honestly don't know what, and we've been doing this so long and we've talked about this kind of thing, and no one has still brought it to my attention. I honestly don't know what happens to people and God knows I don't want to find out the hard way like I don't want to be in a victim of it and then find out and be reporting to you you know live as it's happening to my life but I really don't know what happens to people when they find themselves 
in these situations how they don't go any further. I mean, that stems from everything from the people who are whose family members get murdered extrajudicially by the police, people that get these abuse settlements and all this, the people that, like you said, in these cases, that uh, people that get exonerated and then they find out the Annie Dukins of the world, you know, ramrodded right. them and got them in there, them and 40,000 other people. I mean, all of the cases of injustice and 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 uh, misconduct that goes on, I don't know what happens to people. I see a lot of them get these attorneys that I think the attorneys are in with the system and, and they, their cases go right. nowhere by design. Right. But, but I don't know, man. I, I'm just saying the criminal, the way that we hear that the criminal court system is clogged up, and that's even considering 97% or however many, I know it's in the 90s of the uh, plea deals. Most of the cases don't go to court. So, I mean, if they're clogged up now, it seems to me, though, that we should be countering it by clogging up the federal court system, civil court system, with these cases, assuming individuals and what have you. I mean, again, going back to the other story, the SPLC reported on that that uh, um, case. That's setting precedence, man. Go after these people or or, the, or these corporations in, in the municipalities in the civil courts. When we first started talking about this, one of the things that I said then was at the time we had just seen a photo of I think it was forty-seven young black women graduating law school, and we like you should go champion these cases. There's a chance to make a fortune for you. Go ahead. And at the same time, to push the envelope towards freedom. So that's what they should be doing now, taking advantage of this opportunity to create freedom. And you know, that study that you posted from the uh, Brennan Center for Justice kind of uh, hyphenates it all. I mean, and I know they're being conservative, but they found that 40% of our prisoners can be released today with no problem, no risk to safety whatsoever because they should have never been in there to begin with. And we're not talking about a few people. They're talking about 580,000 prisoners being released. We always ask for a little more than a million. They're saying 580,000, and these are your intellectuals, the Brennan Center for Justice, people who get paid and have doctorates to determine these things. So, I mean, what more do we need to tell you? Anyway, you're listening to New Abolitionist Radio right here on BlackTalkRadioNetwork.com. We will be right back after these messages. Podcasts and live program scheduling, visit us on the web at blacktalkradionetwork.com. Peace and welcome back to New Abolitionist Radio. Uh, Scotty, Johanna, you guys want to continue on with that? Yeah, I wanted you to finish talking about what you were talking about before we went to break. You said that they said... Oh, you mean the, uh, the new study that just came out? Yes. 
Oh, absolutely. Uh, it's something that we've been saying from pretty much day one, that the 2.4 million people who are in prison now, well over a million of them shouldn't even be in there. They're only there as extortionist practice. They're kidnapped individuals who are being exploited. Not only they are being exploited, but their families are being exploited and their communities are being exploited unconstitutionally and illegally using the 13th Amendment exception clause. A new report from the Brennan Center for Justice finds that unnecessary incarceration. Well, I got to pause there because every time I turn around, there's another damn new name for slavery. A new report from the Brennan Center for Justice finds that unnecessary incarceration is eating up billions in taxpayers' dollars while not making communities safer. Many of the country's inmates shouldn't be in prison. The Brennan Center concluded, in particular, nearly 40% of the country's inmates are being incarcerated without a sufficient public safety rationale. They include low-level offenders who should never have been jailed, according to the center, and violent criminals whose sentences are too severe. Uh, I guess an example would be the brother we, was, uh, we had tonight as our uh, rider of the 21st Century Underground Railroad who ended up doing 115 years for uh, an alleged rape and robbery. They went on further to say, if those 576,000 prisoners were released, taxpayers would save about $20 billion a year. And this is the part that throws me for a loop, Johanna, you know where I'm coming from. No sooner than they say, these intellectuals, that we could save $20 billion a year by freeing these unjustly incarcerated people, then they offer an idea where you could spend that extra money. The sum is enough to employ 270,000 new police officers, 360,000 probation officers, or 327,000 school teachers. It is greater than the annual budgets of the United States Department of Commerce and Labor combined, according to the report. Nonviolent offenders make up a quarter of the current U.S. prison population. Those inmates, the Brennan Center contends, would be better served by probation, community service, or mental health and drug treatment. It's more than a quarter. It's more than a quarter. Oh, it's more than a quarter. And we haven't even gotten to the racial aspect. It's about 70%. The racial aspect of this either. This is just all prisoners combined. Um, the nonprofit suggests the solution is a mix of reducing maximum sentences for violent offenders and not jailing low-level criminals at all. Brennan Center attorney L.B. Eisen, one of the authors of the study, said imprisonment often starts a hard-to-break cycle for many offenders. Of course it does. You just took everything from somebody. What are they going to do when they come out? Become a doctor? I mean, I'm just saying, you know, you have all of these collateral consequences. Again, words that we have been putting in into the universe, an ability to get a job because you have a record, an inability to get public housing, your family may have abandoned you, or your spouse may have moved on, your children may have moved away, Eisen said in the interview. She said other studies have demonstrated that longer sentences increase someone's probability of committing another crime once released. There's so much more here to this article. You should check it out on New Abolitionist Radio. In the meantime, you get the gist of what's going on. Those who get paid to study this uh, agree with us. Let these people go. Not tomorrow. Don't wait for a commutation. Open the door right now and let out at least 600,000 people whose lives are being destroyed by this state. Look, man, at the end of it all, and to anybody listening to this in now or in the future, 
uh, uh, fired until this is done, until it happens, you have no argument for this beyond prohibition. And this country laid out a perfect example of prohibition being a complete failure in creating these exact same kinds of conditions for white people a hundred years ago. This is not... I mean, I, it just it just boggles my mind sometimes other than the obvious profit generating aspect of it I mean I'm just saying this based on humanity and right and wrong and common sense and you know this type of thing precedent that has been set but now of course when you look at the financial aspect of it which is really why the war on drugs kicked off in the first place because the department of uh, the treasury uh, department of treasury that was running prohibition busts and stopping the, the uh, revenue being generated off of trading uh, in, in alcohol, they didn't have a job. They lost the war on liquor. So they created the war on drugs. And it mm -hmm. has been focused on it's been focused on black and brown and poor and mentally ill and homeless, transient, politically non-represented people in this country for the last 100 years. And it's still happening the exact same way now. The precedent has already said it doesn't work. You cannot prohibit adults, consenting adults with the, the cash, the space, the opportunity and availability of drugs. You can't make them not do drugs. You, you, you just can't. What we're, do, what we're doing in this country, what we're seeing is so absurd. You can only have slavery as the driving force behind it because it's so damn absurd. It wouldn't be, it, you couldn't keep it going if unless there were multi-millionaire and multi-billionaires who were sitting somewhere up the line collecting big-time revenues off of throwing out that dragnet and bringing in new slaves. You know, again, this is where we differ from other types of abolitionist movements is because our focal point is slavery. It's the entire system of slavery, not just a single component of slavery, not a result of slavery, not one of the symptoms of slavery or the signatures of slavery, but slavery itself. That's what we're trying to get rid of because it's illegal. I know it's surprising to hear that, but slavery is illegal in the United States and it's practiced daily on a major level and internationally as well. And people think I'm maybe a little bit too extreme when I say let those people go today. I think like that because I know that before the night out, the night is out tonight, several people are going to be dead. Before the night is out tonight, hundreds of people potentially could be raped. Before the night is out tonight, they will be brutalized, put into solitary confinement, abused, tortured. All of these things are going to happen tonight. And we're going to wait till tomorrow and the next day and the next day. And they happen every day. Just like Tutwiler's prison, which is a house of freaking horrors on planet Earth. A woman's prison where for over a decade the women have been molested and raped by the guards and still the guards have not been arrested. They've admitted to it. They said they did it. 50% of the guards accused admitted to it. And yet there they are, still passing out toothpaste for oral favors. So yeah, open the door right now and that what you said also Max that goes right to uh, our friend and brother abolitionist uh, from the inside uh, brother kinetic justice that the all call went out the clarion call went out to uh, to reach out as concerned citizens about reported abuse that he may have suffered 
Now, you know, Kinetic Justice was one of the brothers that was at the heart of uh, setting up the national prison strike. Uh, one of the lead members of uh, Free Alabama Movement, a very vocal brother. He's actually been interviewed on Democracy Now! and other uh, public we and other publications. Yeah, so he's actually he's out here. He's a real person. And uh, recently the report came out that what well, we had talked about after the strike started, how they moved him. And they moved a lot of these brothers that were seen as being either leaders or organizers or taking part in this slave uh, labor strike. So when these people are saying they're not going to work, do the slave labor for these corporations, they're not going to generate revenue for these corporations, and they're being punished, they're being broken up, they're being sent to other plantations. Now we've got a report that he was actually attacked by two uh, guards. They said uh, Friday, December the 2nd. So you know the difficulty we have getting information from behind those walls out into the world. So this is a report that came out from them, said December 2nd, uh, Free Alabama Movement, Robert Earl Council, also known as Kinetic Justice, was brutally attacked while handcuffed by two officers, officers Dozier and Shoulders, at the Limestone Correctional Facility where he had been moved. Um, it said he's being escorted to a shower, he's pushed to the floor, one officer physically attacked him while he was on the floor. Afterwards, the second officer pulled the first officer off and then sprayed him in the face with mace and then returned him to his cell. It's not known as of this date if medical treatment was administered for any of his injuries. So we've got a listing of uh, contact info, and I will copy and paste this and put it on the New Abolitionist Radio uh, Facebook page and uh, make sure we get that information out to folks, whether it's on the New Abolitionist Radio page or in the Move to Abolish 21st Century slavery and human trafficking group and uh, just continue to do what we do you know create a, a call for action to let it be known that we know what you're doing to our brothers and and what's the other brother this down that was down there with him in the free alabama movement the last uh two years ago when they did the strike before and they beat him and tried to poison him to death uh um ray was was the brother's yeah. name melvin ray so we melvin know ray, that that's the so we know that this is what they do when you say that you're not going to be a slave when you do they're doing the hard part inside fighting against the immediate threat to their lives and their health their safety their well-being inside they're doing their part standing down from the slave labor so we have to do what we can to support them to get the word out to let it be known to those inside that are doing this to them we know that you're terrorizing we know that you're torturing our brothers and sisters and try to bring about the end of this really I don't, you know, just to put it in perspective, these brothers are real heroes right now uh, in the sense of Frederick Douglass and, uh, and Harriet Tubman and Matt Turner, like truly among abolitionists. Understand the circumstances that they exist under. In Alabama, as we reported here for 30 years, the Alabama Police Department were targeting and arresting black men specifically in order to fill those prisons. Those prisons are at 200% capacity. There's, that means there's two men to every bed. 200% capacity. They're also employed, making commercial goods for companies like McDonald's. Yes, McDonald's, where you buy your freaking hamburgers. People in Alabama prisons are working for McDonald's. And they have been brutalized there in these prisons on a regular basis. So you have to understand the circumstances these brothers are living in. At any moment, they could lose their lives. And these demons would get away with it. Excuse me? I, I didn't hear you. 
Well, to that, um, also, I just want to add, we had a story that came out here recently in the in the so-called free world where a black woman was, or all the black um, customers in a Victoria's Secret, I guess, were told to leave the store. And so this sent out a social media viral call to action for black folks to stop shopping at Victoria's Secret. And, you know, this is the kind of thing that lets me know that too many people are not very serious. Um, as uh, our, our brother Professor uh, Cambone said famously, black people are very serious about not being very serious. As we've been telling you to boycott, we've been telling you about the atrocities. We've been reporting on slave uprisings and slave revolts in these prisons around the country where they're being forced into labor situations. Even the, the immigrants, whether it's black, brown, poor, mentally ill, whatever, we've been telling you this for years that Victoria's Secret was definitely one of those that was prominently named among those that you need to avoid doing business with. Nobody gave a damn, but as soon as you get one, get put out the store, and all of a sudden it goes, it gets a million views and gets shared 200,000 times and you got all kind of people setting up groups and want to be a part of something where they want to boycott this now at their own convenience. This is the epitome of the Solomon Northrop complex. When it wasn't affecting you, you didn't really give a damn. You just went on and played your fiddle. Went on and drank your wine and went on and kicked your heels and had a good time with them people. With the slave owners, with the slave masters. But as soon as they made you get out of the store, when they made you feel bad, when they treated you poorly, now all of a sudden the world has to stop. Well, I'm glad they want to boycott for some reason, but just understand this is not going to stop until you start to care about slavery, until you acknowledge slavery is still going on, until you care about the people that are actually being enslaved. And You know, you hit the nail on the head earlier, and it's something that I've been studying now for months trying to, dis- to figure out, and I think I've got it, is that they keep talking about the free people. That's always the narrative. What happened to the people outside slavery, outside prison? What was the Solomon Northrop's going through? Not what was the people who were enslaved going through, but what was he doing going through when he was out playing his violin? Oh, he was being segregated. Oh, he was being discriminated against. All of these things about the people who were not locked up in cages and being used like mules. See, there was a line, and that line went straight through convict leasing. And every time I try to look through these intellectuals' documents and see where they talk about convict leasing, whenever they put that line, it doesn't exist there. It's as if they forgotten the, the people who were convicted and treated as criminals, like the 13th says, from slave to slavery to criminal and one of them. Now, you know, we haven't talked at all tonight really about the racial aspect of what's going on right here, and it's important that we show that it exists because it does. And, you know, slavery is something all people can fight against together because it does affect all people, but it certainly affects African Americans, Native Americans, Hispanic Americans a great deal more than anybody else to the tune of 12 to 1 in places where they only make up a small fraction of a percentage of the entire population. And there's a, a two-minute, 2.4-minute video that I have, Scotty. If we get some time, I wouldn't mind playing it. It explains that pretty clearly. Where can I locate it? Uh, both new abolitionist planning pages and uh, on the, the website. I just put it there. Okay, let me go to um, New Abolitionists. Give me just a moment. If you want to continue while I look for it, 
Yes, indeed. This is a link I saw from Colossal Hill. And again, I know you had everything planned out. You don't want to spend too much time on extra things, but I just thought that this was something that would fit in with what we're saying here. And looking at our list of stories, it seems like we covered just about everything except our regular segments. So this will. Yeah, we still got that John Legend. We still got that John mm-hmm. Legend story, though. That I, um, oh, okay, the John yeah. Legend. Yeah, but uh, uh, give me just a second. I'm 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 looking for it now. Two million people in prison in America, half are African-American. Yes, Is that That's it? The one. Okay. That's the one. Listen closely to this video, ladies and gentlemen. Some reason ain't no sound coming off of it. There it go. America has one twentieth of the world's population, but one fifth of the world's prisoners. One in every eight prisoners in the world is an African American. This is modern slavery. Some might say, well, if they did the crime, they should do the time. African Americans commit 12% of the nonviolent drug offenses in the United States, but they constitute 75% of prison admissions for nonviolent drug offenses. A young African American who is convicted of a crime will serve exactly twice the sentence that a young white American will convicted of the same crime. They're the people who are going to be harvesting the crops in Colorado for 60 cents a day. so much of the problem with this is are the dividers between us that cause us not to be each other's brother and each other's sister so that we can't watch each other you can't be concerned about things that you don't know about and so freedom starts in here We could get trillions of dollars from reparations, but if we can't fix ourselves in here, the money will do us no good. One in eight of every prisoner on the entire planet is an African-American. And it ain't because you got a lot of Americans locked up in France. It ain't because you got a lot of Americans locked up in England. And it ain't because you got a lot of Americans locked up in Egypt or Libya or India or anywhere else. It's because they're all locked up right here. Well, I'm glad that he said it's rooted in slavery. Well, it is slavery. That's why, you know. But again, just a total... 
I mean, when you think about it in the terms that he laid out, and other people have laid it out as well, when you think that uh, the United States, again, let's just break it down. China, how many people do China have? A billion people, right? Or more. They are supposed to be this communist state where nobody's free and they're under the thumb of the communists and all. Then how is it then, if that's true, how much worse must be those people in charge of the state of Louisiana that they, that they have seven times the prison population of the country with a billion people. Think about it, people. When you when you know they, he mentioned Scotty, when they that, say uh, those are those are the people who will be uh, doing the crops in Colorado. That's because yes, Colorado, I heard the prisons over there now are offering their prisoners to do. Uh, to work the fields because of the tough new immigration laws. Uh, uh, but listen, they've been mm-hmm. doing this. Angola prison. That's a prison farm. I mean, they're already processing. It was only uh, just last year or earlier this year that Whole Foods quit using uh, uh, produce that was picked by prison slave labor. They just quit doing it. But again, we uh, uh, prisoners work in every, almost every industry, especially with food processing, fish, poultry, um, uh, beef. That my brother, was, who was ten years a slave, they had him on turkey farms, man. So it ain't like this is going to happen. It's been happening. I mean, convict leasing programs. Soon as them prisoners. Got, as soon as them black folks got targeted by them black code laws and put into jail, they were hired out to who? Back to the plantations to work the land. It wasn't just, yeah, they still had some sharecroppers in, in that whole exploitation rink, but they still was using what? Slaves through the courts. Well, was actually we selling the slaves through the courts. That's the thing, and that's there's still the same comparison going on right now. I mean, that was literally the the bill of sale coming from the courthouse. The sheriff signing the bill of sale of the individuals that had broken whatever law, uh, vagrancy. Jim Brown will be for sale on the courthouse steps today. I mean, this this is so deeply rooted in reality of America, not TV. Not your favorite music or, or you'd like to eat all the food you want to eat or sex or sports or not none of this BS that you see that fills up most of the capacity of people's minds and brains and hearts to care. That's what people use to fill up those spaces. But the reality of what's really going on is the same now as it was in those times post-emancipation proclamation. 1880, 1890, 1910, there are still bills of sale. There are still advertisements in the newspapers of those days. You can look at them your own self that say, for sale on the courthouse steps, such and such date and time. Who's selling them? The sheriff. The sheriff's name and his credentials and then the names of the people and whatever they did. And whoever bought them is just whoever bought them. This is after slavery was so-called over. This is after the 13th Amendment. This is what's still going on. And still right now today, when you have these private prisons, number one, that are doing the same thing, 
when we you talk about the process and the food and whatnot, I remember we talked about the the uh, gentleman in in uh, Colorado that had built himself a labor complex that was in between, I think it was four different prison campuses where he was able to source the labor from four different prisons and had an ever rotating schedule of labor, slave labor coming from each prison, guys coming and doing a shift, uh, working the fish farms, working the farming, the various aspects of the farming. They was making teddy bears for little kids, toy stores. They was making, uh, um, several types of goods that were for sale in stores and this guy he just had the market cornered on it there was nobody else really trying to get a piece of it he just had them he built it in a good place and he was doing it that is the equivalent of the sheriff or the local whoever police prosecutor whoever's putting those people in those situations putting them in jail selling their labor to the highest bidder somebody that is able to build a labor facility and take advantage of that if we could look inside these prisons just like what happened in Wallace County when they rebelled against doing that labor for McDonald's where they were processing the meats the patties and sending them out for distribution to to be used in the stores where they were processing the plasticware creating the little plasticware kits that you get with your food creating the uniforms for the employees all over the country and possibly over the world these people were doing that and when they stopped doing it we got a chance to see inside the destroyed prison facility they had an entire labor complex in there with the name whatever the individual's name was the corporate sponsorship of that company inside the prison so these people are behind bars working slave labor and they have to go to like a corporate type of a job a, t- a corporate environment this labor wing sponsored by the J.H. Rogers whatever whatever I mean, this is what's going on. We're not making this up. This is one case, but there are thousands of cases. It has not changed. It is still slavery. It's still the highest bidder. It's still an endless work situation where you get slave wage pay, and you're still racking up more debt in the free world if you ever get out that you will never be able to pay, and you're therefore subject to going right back in because now you owe all these fines and fees, and 15 cents a day wouldn't do a damn thing to help you. Another thing that was supposed to have been abolished, debtors' prisons. And we've established, not I don't mean new abolitionist radio, although we have been a clarion call, but we've established through other organizations have proved it beyond a shadow of a doubt that they exist. They're they're happening right now. Debtors prisons. You don't pay probation or somebody's gonna send you to prison. Give me that one forty a month or else, Negro. Yep. Yep. Everybody's hands out, getting the money. And it's uh and it's legal. So like we said, we talk about, you know, the abolitionists around the world that are talking about slave labor and child kidnapping child labor and transients and all these different things yes of course we are against these things as well these are already illegal see these people have already had their day they've already had their day in court they've already had their chance in the in the in the public decision making process where the public has said no we don't want that and we absolutely want to abolish that we absolutely do not want that see you don't have child labor is abolished is is outlawed except if the child's a redhead that's what we have in american prison slave labor right now though so you don't have sex trafficking is illegal except if the person is over 150 pounds 
They have an outright abolition of these things. They are straight up illegal. Internationally, in each national locality, these people go to international courts and local courts, and these people go to prisons. These people get busted. They pay the fines. They go to jail, everything else. But here in America, we have abolished something that is still okay for you to go ahead and do if you can come up with a situation where it's acceptable. And that situation happens to be prohibition of recreational drug use. That situation just happens to be stacking up as many charges as you possibly can as a prosecutor. A person may have had a parking ticket, and if you can tell them, hey, man, you're not only going to get the parking ticket, I'm going to throw a murder case on you because I got the crime lab in my back pocket, and they're going to give me a guilty conviction. So uh, you want a cop to uh, manslaughter? And now your day just went from a Khalif Browder where you never did anything and you spent three years in jail because you harder than 95% of the people that get convicted. Khalif Browder, even though he's gone and they said he killed himself, if he did, God rest his soul, he was harder than 95% of the people that go to prison right now because they can't wait three years. They can't sit in Rikers for three years and be abused and beaten, starved to death, tortured for three years with no charges ever being brought against them. They just cop the plea. Hey, man, I got to get back home. So what do we need to do here? I'll take two years. Screw it. If you can get a conviction, you can make a slave in America. Well, we're uh, at the 9.30 mark, 9.32 actually. I guess we'll take a break, Scotty, and we'll come back. We'll do the John Lennon. Yeah. Or John Legend. Yes, yes sir. <laughs> You're listening to Black Business Radio here at BlackTalkRadioNetwork.com with Johanna Elias. Scotty Reed, Max Park. We'll be right back. Media Project funds the use of new media technology in efforts to restore independent black voices to the myriad of issues affecting Afro-descendant people all over the planet. If media can control the minds of the masses, as Malcolm X once said, then you must ask yourself, who is in control of the media targeting the masses of black people today? Help bring back independence, self-determination, and respect for black culture in the production of global media by joining the effort to crowdfund new black media for the new millennium. Visit blacktalkmediaproject.org for more information on how you can invest in public black radio for the masses. So welcome back to New Abolitionist Radio. Definitely invest in Black Talk Radio Network. Um, we need all the help we can get. We want to take this as high as we possibly can, reach as many people across the globe as we possibly can with the intent, at least here from New Abolitionist Radio, of ending slavery. Um, you have the uh, story from John Legend, the letter he wrote to uh, President Obama you want to go over, Scotty Reed? Yes, sir. Um Again, um, 
I'm an abolitionist. Remind me, guys, didn't John Legend and who was that common win a Oscar or something for a song? And remind me of that. Yeah, that yeah. was them for Selma. Mm -hmm. For Selma, and mm -hmm. didn't John Legend make some some? comments that I, I think if I recall correctly were pretty logical. Do y'all recall what the gist of his comments were? You had it? Specific to, to, to what? I mean, I, I remember that occurrence and I know we talked about it on the program because I mean, all of this stuff is basically basically hollow. He said that he was going to uh, dedicate his time to ending mass incarceration. That was uh, his passion. Yeah, and I, he was going to put his, where his mouth was at, and he's done that uh, at least towards ending what he sees as mass incarceration uh, through media and using his platform. Well, News One is reporting they are saying that John Luke, John Legend, this is their words, is squeezing President Obama for all he's got ahead of his departure from the White House, and rightfully so, as God only knows what we're up against when Donald Trump takes office. Uh, the sofa crooner took a break from writing hit ballads to address the needs of those in prison and how President Obama can continue his criminal justice reform efforts. In an open letter published by Rolling Stone, legend has one last request for the leader of the free world. Man, why do they use these terms? Oh, that's right. Oh, he writes, President Obama, first of all, I would like to thank you for your friendship and your outstanding service to our country. I'm particularly grateful for the concrete steps your administration has taken to provide opportunities to tens of millions of young people and families who have been impacted by mass incarceration. Uh, what opportunities would those be? Uh, your administration took bold steps to end juvenile solitary confinement. I think there were like less than 25 children in juvenile solitary confinement in federal governments uh, reduced the use of federal private prisons and moved to ban the box for federal employees. While we hope the Trump administration in the 115th Congress will maintain this progress and continue to work in a bipartisan manner, manner to reform our criminal justice system, it is unclear what the priorities will be and when families can expect justice. Before you leave office, I would like to add my voice to the more than 2 million Americans who have asked you to use your clemency and pardon powers to bring justice to the thousands of families of nonviolent drug offenders who have waited far too long for Congress to act. In 2014, you set out, you set out to reinvigorate our country's approach to clemency. Your actions to commute the sentences of 944 individuals, including 324 life sentences, is unprecedented in the modern era. Nonetheless, more action is needed to dismantle the unjust policies of the past 40 years. An estimated 36,000 nonviolent drug offenders housed in federal prisons have sought relief under your clemency initiative, and it is unclear how many of the remaining cases will be reviewed before you leave. As the Surgeon General noted, drug addiction is not a moral failing, but a chronic health issue deserving of our compassion. What is a moral failing, however, is the war on drugs and America's addiction to incarceration, which has not increased safety, but needlessly torn families apart. 
Uh, legend goes on to ask that he grant as many clemencies as possible before leaving office. I urge you to consider issuing categorical uh, commutations to bring an end to the injustice that remains in our federal sentencing schemes. For example, approximately 5,000 individuals are serving sentences based on prejudice laws, which punish drug crimes involving crack cocaine more severely, severely than crimes involving powder cocaine. Rectifying these crack powder disparities will not only correct the mistakes of the past, but could save taxpayers just over $150 million per year and keep with public sentiment about the over-incarceration and criminalization of drug crimes. Oh, man, it goes on and on. It, it, okay, I'm almost done. A couple more paragraphs. Um, overwhelmingly, voters in red and blue states voted to end the country's reliance on incarceration for drug crimes and other low-level offenses. California voters approved Prop 57, which expands parole and time off for good behavior for nonviolent offenses. And Oklahoma voters approved measures to reclassify certain property offenses and drug possession crimes from felonies to misdemeanors. Arkansas, California, Florida, Massachusetts, Montana, Nevada, and North Dakota made changes to their cannabis laws. At the birth of our nation, see, this is where they be losing me, but I don't know if he trying to be codified. I don't know. At the birth of our nation, now this is coming from John Legend, the founding fathers entrusted the clemency responsibility to the president. Article 2, Section 2, Clause 1 of the Constitution of the United States provides, the president shall have power to grant reprieves and pardons for offenses against the United States, except in cases of impeachment, just as George W. Bush urged you to proactively address clemency on your way to your first inauguration in 2009. I am asking you to bring justice to thousands of families by granting as many clemencies as possible before you leave office. Okay, so he's citing the Constitution and pointing out to Obama, you do indeed have the power, just like people been pointing out to him you can remove cannabis right now from the scheduled list of drugs by the corrupt and criminal drug enforcement agency just remove it from the federal uh scheduled list of drugs that that'll go along with what did he say well if y'all want it done then you need to pass a law go through the courts why when you got the power vested in you in the power of that office by the const by way of the constitution to do these things. So John Legend, I appreciate you writing that. Um, even though I may as an abolitionist take issue with the reform message, but any relief that I that that we can bring to enslaved victims of modern day slavery, I'll take that while continuing to push for for complete abolition of slavery. So I appreciate where his heart is at, even if he ain't right on all the facts. He's doing more than I see many, you know, uh, showcase celebrities in his position. So at least he's doing something. Um, I'm not going to criticize him in any kind of way, but I think, you know, uh, he should have wrote the letter, but I hope his expectations aren't that high. Because I don't expect this man to do anything of the sort because we know from reporting on this program when that law was first signed, when he signed the law into act reducing the uh, disparity in crack cocaine and power from 100 to 1 to 18 to 1, 
he then ordered his Justice Department to then fight those very people that was applying to have their sentences reduced and, and redone under that law. He didn't want, they wanted to be granted, that law was only moving forward. These people that's enslaved was wanting it to be retroactively applied. And in and, and the Obama administration, through the Justice Department, with Eric Holder, no doubt was there at the time, fought to keep these people in slavery. So I hope, Mr. Legend, that your expectations are not that high, but I do uh, appreciate your contribution uh, in bringing uh, um, attention to those who are suffering. That's all I got on that, guys. There's two dates that just passed. December 10th was Human Rights Day, and December 6th was the 151st anniversary of the the alleged abolition of slavery. And I'm going to be a rebel on this one. Whenever people are out here pushing the mass incarceration uh, logic, I feel like you ain't helping me. <laughs> like you, you're taking what is a crime against humanity and giving it legitimacy. Uh, and you're making it into a mistake. And you're trying to help solve this problem that we all cause together. And I get that. But again, like I said, I'm being a rebel against this. It just bothers me to no end when statements like this are made. Rectifying these crack powder disparities would not only correct the mistakes of the past, but could save taxpayers just over 100 million, 150 million per year, and keep a public sentiment about the over-incarceration and criminalization of drug crimes. Okay, it's not that it's racist that they're in prison, 100 to 1 laws, because they were black. No, that's not a good reason to let them out. It's not that they're in there unjustly, uh, unconstitutionally, that it is a system of slavery exploiting these people and their families. You should let them out because it'll save you some money. You should stop raping me because it'll save you some money. You should stop murdering me because it'll save you some money. You should stop killing my family. Why? Because it'll save you some money. See, I I can't get with that logic. I I don't want to codify Stop it because it's wrong. If Dick Cheney had a freaking stroke, he wouldn't be asking how much money it costs to get his ass back together. He wouldn't be saying, well, the problem is some money if we use a different doctor. He wouldn't be saying that. But we got the problem we're facing, Max. Instead, the problem we're facing, bro, is, is this is what they want to do with this land. It is a game preserve, it is a hunting ground. The people that are keeping this going, they they got enough money. They don't care about the money and the profitability of it. Honestly, they would just rape the world for money from some other source. They're doing it because it brings them happiness. It makes them happy to kill innocent people. It makes them happy to shed innocent blood. It makes them happy to bring terror into neighborhoods and to deprive people and to continue to keep a slave underclass to keep a plantation. You don't have a country that went from 1620 in, in this area and other places longer than that, but let's just say in colonial America, 1620 Jamestown, you don't just set up a plantation system and maintain that for 250 years. Maintaining it by continuing a nonstop kidnap and enslavement of the youth of African nations for 300 years you don't do that because you're only motivated by money you do that because you like to see people tortured 
You like to go and take people and rape them. You like to rip people apart. You like to rip mothers, pregnant mothers into four quarters and the baby drop on the ground and you like to stomp on its head. These are, ex these are things, experiences that money can't buy. The sadism, the torture, the evil that these people express. See, when we get down to it, we're, we've been very benign on the program the first 47 minutes. We've been real nice. But the, the evil is at the heart of this. True, evil. straight up evil is at the heart of this. And I don't like to sound like that guy that I'm trying to scare people, but that's what's at the heart of this. That's why your politicians are complicit in running drugs and guns and prostitution and pedophilia and torture and rape and murder. America knows that it rapes more people than anywhere else on the planet Earth right here in its prisons with 2.5 million people behind bars. America knows that. These sick bastards love it. That's who you're dealing Man, with. It's a damn shame when a singer-songwriter has to appeal, a black singer-songwriter has to appeal to the only black president we've ever had that he'll save some money if he lets some Negroes go. That's the appeal. That just a, uh, it doesn't sit well with me. And as I said, I ponder this whole schism between abolitionist organizations to some detail. In the last paragraph of what I wrote in detail about it says this. The abolitionists see slavery, the real kind, the physical kind, the let's capture and sell a nigga on the auction block kind. Pray tell, what do you see? If I see slavery and you don't, then how will we allies? By default, you are declaring us wrong. By numbers, you are delegitimizing de de our argument. By access to grants, funding, and educational institutions, you are pushing us right out of the picture so the question can't even get asked, let alone considered. Whether we're right or not never seems to matter. And that's how it is. Like, you keep coming out with this mass incarceration crap. And you're fighting it like your life depends on it. Well, you don't even know what you're dealing with. Well, see, that's why I'm willing, that's why I'm willing to give him the benefit of the doubt is because I'm looking at, I'm holding out the hope that we can reach John Legend and convert him into an abolitionist. That's what I hope to do with all these people using that mass incarceration language because ultimately I don't see them as being the perpetrators of this language to deceive people. I see them as victims. No, they're not. They're, they're I, I see them You're right. I, I see them as victims of the same programming that had me four years ago thinking slavery was abolished and, and it's something else. It's mass incarceration until I read the thirteenth amendment. So that's why that's that's what I mean by you know I appreciate his efforts, but at the same time I can't go along with the reform message. But at the same time, in my quest for total abolitionists, I, it's it, I, I'm still willing to, I mean, free as many as I can, bring as much relief I can, while at the same time don't think that I'm gonna stop or I'm satisfied. If President Obama released those he's calling for in federal prison, well, that still leaves a whole bunch of uh, uh, enslaved individuals in state custody. You see what right. I'm saying? He's so we about five thousand. We just talked about five hundred and seventy-six thousand. Right, 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 right. And then I also understand the tactic of we're dealing with the ancestors of an immoral people in an immoral society where immorality is the daily programming. So you may not be able to appeal to him it's not right to enslave individuals, 
But you might appeal to him, well, tell me how you benefiting from these individuals being enslaved when it's costing you money and putting taking money out your pocket. So I understand the tactics of knowing your audience and trying to appeal. If you know they don't care about black people, if you know they're unempathetic, they lack empathy, that's science, they're scientific study. So how can I appeal to this person to get what I want? I need to manipulate them. And it's what it comes down to. I need to manipulate my message to my audience. Now, I'm not saying that's what he's doing because this is a letter to one individual. That's Barack Obama. And But again, I don't know John Legend personally. I don't know what he's been exposed to. But he seems more fertile ground to try to convert him to a full-fledged abolitionist as opposed to another individual who may be talking about, hey, Donald Trump about to lock up a bunch of Mexicans, let's invest in jails and make money off their backs. You know, let's be modern day slavers ourselves. White people do it. So so that's why I'm not so harsh towards these people that call themselves reformers or they taught that reform message because if you pay attention to his words, you know that, you know he's just repeating what he heard from Michelle Alexander and I was thinking the same thing. If I would lay that blame anywhere, it would be on Michelle Alexander for really popularizing this whole concept of mass incarceration in lieu of leaning towards modern day slavery. I don't understand it. And she's becoming an abolitionist over time. She's even made the statement that she don't think that we could ever end this mass incarceration in the way that we're trying right now. But he's been highly influenced by her writings. And that's right. the yin and yang of it all. She brought a lot of attention to it, but she misdirected it. Right. Right. If you don't call it what it is, if you don't diagnose the problem, speaking in medical terms, if I don't diagnose the system, the symptoms properly, I may not never identify the disease that's causing the symptoms. And so she's calling a symptom mass incarceration when the disease is slavery. Well, we know what the disease is. We don't have to talk about the symptoms anymore. Let's focus on curing the disease, which is slavery. How do you create slavery? Well, you're going to need mass incarceration. It's one of the things you're going to need to create slavery. Uh, Listen, uh, we got two more segments uh, uh, yes, sir. The Lotus Place is not on air tonight. Uh, Black Rose, the well, host, is, is not feeling well. So uh, these two tech segments take us past 10 o'clock. You know, let's take enough time that we need to get through these segments properly. Just want to let you guys know in case you're thinking we were up against it. All right. Well, in our next segment, which is our regular segment, uh, the rider of the 21st Century Underground Railroad, there's actually a video, and it's a three-minute video. So I guess we can let him speak for himself on that one. Um, of course, our rider of the 21st Century Underground uh, this week is a Lawrence McKinney, who was convicted by a Memphis jury of raping a woman during a burglary. The victim identified McKinney as one of two men who attacked her, and he was sentenced to 115 years for the deed. Where is the video? Because <laughs> I'm on the uh, page. It's, new it's radio on Facebook there. Uh, it's, it's, if you open the link and scroll down, you'll see the video there. Okay. Because uh, I I was um, I had linked to that, uh, what is it, NY Daily News story. So give me yeah, a moment. Yeah, that's kind of a long yeah. segment to read. 
So yeah. I figured they had a three-minute video where he could you could hear him in his own words. Yeah, let me get it, to the page, cool. and I'll pull it right up. But, um, yeah, so he's been out for a while, but we've, I wanted to feature him because of they blocked it. They took how many years? How many decades, actually, years. of this man's life and gave him $75 and called it a day. All right. $75. Man. Yep. 31 years. Oh, his life. 31 years and nine months behind bars, almost 32 years. And he was declared innocent in 2008 uh, after a thorough examination of DNA evidence cleared him. And then he was released in 2009. But like you said, $75 and go about your business. So now he's trying to get what's available to him, which is as much as a million dollars to people who have been exonerated. But apparently they don't want to give him anything. Wow, man. So this this is on posted on Atlanta Black Star, right? Yeah. So Yes. Okay, it's loading up. He's been this case to the governor, uh Governor Bill Haslam, uh, in order to see if he can get some intervention going on here. But it's just a shame when you steal somebody's life thirty one, thirty two years here we and go. then send them packing with seven DNA evidence is freeing innocent people from prison, but often only after they've lost decades of their lives. Thirty states offer compensation, but less than half of these former prisoners are ever paid. Omar Villafranca has been looking into a case in Tennessee. These days, Lawrence McKinney can't seem to stay still. The 60-year-old has spent enough time sitting in one place. How long were you in prison? 31 years, 9 months, 18 days, and 12 hours. You have it down to the hours? Yes, sir. A Memphis, Tennessee jury convicted McKinney of rape and burglary in 1978. The victim identified him as one of two men who attacked her in her bedroom. He was sentenced to 115 years. What's going through your mind when you're hearing that now you're going to prison? I still could not believe because I thought that it was a dream or something. In 2008, DNA testing of evidence scientifically excluded McKinney as a suspect. Prosecutors said if this evidence had been available, there would have been no prosecution. I don't have no life. All my life was took away. In 2009, he was released and given $75. Since then, McKinney has depended on odd jobs at his church just to pay the bills. Under Tennessee law, he could be eligible for up to a million dollars compensation. But the parole board, which hears such cases, has rejected his request twice. In an exoneration hearing, we have to have a lot of evidence, clear and convincing. Patsy Bruce served on Tennessee's parole board for 12 years. She heard McKinney's first exoneration case. Why wasn't the judgment by a court and a district attorney clear and convincing enough for you? Because they didn't notice that they didn't test everything that was ordered by the original judge to be tested. Prosecutors say the two samples not tested either had no DNA or were so degraded, tests could not be performed. Do you feel that there is a guilty man walking? I have not been convinced he's innocent. It's not justice for him not to receive compensation for being wrongfully imprisoned. McKinney's lawyer, Jack Lowry, has appealed the case to Governor Bill Haslam, who has the final say. There's been one mistake made where he was sent to prison. I trust that another one is not made that does not allow him exoneration. The governor could make a decision at any moment. 
After waiting 31 years for his freedom, McKinney says he can wait a little longer. Omar Villafranca, CBS News, Lebanon, Tennessee. Sound like we need a campaign uh, um, 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 uh, call the governor's office campaign on behalf of this man. Um, it's just, man, this is just ridiculous for that racist cracker white woman. DNA evidence has exonerated this man. And you're going to say you not convinced? This is why parole boards, right. in my opinion, should be abolished. This should be automatic. Mm-hmm. He's been exonerated by DNA, by science. He's been, uh, uh, the prosecutor said if this evidence had existed, he would have never been prosecuted. He's been let out of prison. And for this old crusty cracker to sit up there, probably a racist, to sit up there and say she not convinced. See, these parole boards have too much power. And, and, and like this also plays into our political prisoners, just like the Move 9. Here you got the entire prison. They didn't been in there three decades for a crime they didn't commit. The, even the prison plantation overseers, all of them, all the entire staff of the prisons they in recommended them for promotion. These people haven't had a prison infraction in over 30 years. And then for these parole boards to deny them. Uh, Sundiata Coley, who helped liberate, who was in the car, and also helped liberate uh, Asada Shakur at, from slavery. And the uh, state Supreme Court said that he has served his time, his full max of his sentence, and the parole board cannot keep den- denying him parole. He's still in prison. He's still in prison. Right. These parole boards, and many of them are former cops or belong to that law enforcement community, and they are not impartial. So I'm just disgusting, but welcome to freedom. We need to see what we can do to assist him in putting pressure on the government to uh, give the uh, governor of Tennessee to get his man his, his million dollars in restitution. For those that watched the video, and you saw the woman's face, you could see in her face, like this, she was getting some perverse pleasure from this, the sly smile, the look of what you would see in a racist face, where they just know they're hurting a black man and it feels good to her. You could see it in her face. Just look at the video, you'll see it for yourself. And you know that this man's life hangs in the balance because of this racist sitting there, talking about, they haven't convinced me yet that he's innocent. So yeah, he's a rapist running around, black Negro rapist, going to get raped by white women, watch out. That's how she sounded to me. It's just ridiculous. <sighs> welcome salute, to Freedom, brother. brother. Yeah, welcome home, brother. Salute, yeah. salute. There's some way we can help, we will. Well, this brings us to our segment, which is our writer of the 21st century, I mean, which is our abolitionist in profile. And uh, this week we have the illustrious Henry Garnett, uh, and uh, we have provided for you his letter, uh, which was a letter he wrote uh, and read in front of Congress to the slaves of America. And if you're one of those today, you should take a look at that letter available at New Abolitionist Radio on Facebook uh, right now. Scotty, you want to do our uh, abolitionist in profile? Yes, sir. We got Henry Highland Garnett, who was born in captivity in Maryland in 1815. When he was nine years old, his family secured their freedom via the Underground Railroad. Garnett entered the African Free School in New York City in 1826. In 1834, 
Garnett and some of his classmates formed their own club, the Garrison Literary and Benevolent Association. Because the society was named after a controversial abolitionist, the public school where the group wanted to meet insisted that the group first change their name. To do otherwise would be to risk mob violence. The club decided to keep their name and instead change their venue. The first meeting of the group garnered over 150 African Americans under the age of 20. Garnett is perhaps most famous for his radical speech of 1843, an address to the slaves of the USA. In this speech, Garnett speaks directly to those enslaved, urging them to rebel against their masters. Because of Garnett's outspoken views and national reputation, he was a prime target during the 1863 New York City draft riots. Rioters mobbed the street where Garnett lived and called for him by name. Finally, finally, fortunately, several neighbors helped to conceal Garnett and his family. He was also involved in the fight to desegregate streetcars in New York. And New Abolitionist Radio salutes Henry Highland Garnett. Salute. And I mean, that, you know what that reminds me? That reminds me of on New Abolitionist Radio, we had put out a call for prisoners to do what? To rebel against slavery. And that came to yep. fruition this year. And it yes, hasn't indeed. gotten any kind of mainstream attention whatsoever so that's just more evidence of what what else we've been saying that corporations are heavily invested in modern day slavery and human trafficking all of these corporations are in it together and and that has been a deliberate effort to suppress that information so that it would not garner uh, more public support to end slavery so shout out again uh, please make those phone calls on behalf of Brother Kinetic of the Free Alabama Movement. Um, these brothers have been on the inside answering the call of uh, Mr. Henry Garnett back in the 1800s, telling enslaved persons to rebel against those holding them in slavery. You know, what made his speech so unique is that he actually addressed the people who were affected mostly by these uh, laws of slavery and human trafficking. That was something that people just didn't do. You didn't talk to the slaves. You talked to the people who owned the slaves, and you tried to change them. And it reminded me so much of our Democratic Party and how they portrayed themselves in this election session where they appealed to the middle class but forgot the $150 million in poverty or near poverty. They, they, they didn't matter at all. And uh, the same thing when I went to the uh, event with Brian Stevenson of the Equal Justice Initiative, and he came there to talk to the intellectuals and the people in power, and I was there representing the people who were being affected by this stuff. But he wasn't talking to me, he was talking to them. So to appeal to the people who are affected by it seems to be a very rare occurrence. It's something we do here every week. Final statements? Uh, I guess... That would be my final statement. I'll just close it off with uh, the quote that you get from me every week. You brothers? Johanna? Hey, peace to the abolitionists. Death to the oppressors. You heard uh, 
a few different times that we we brought up things that are just so indisputable and so evil and there's no uh there's no other method to bring about change there's no other vehicle that's going to uh this that's going to come to bring the changes or no other way of of bringing it to an end other than you person that hears here's my voice right now who reads the information we put out every day when you see this in the future if it's still going on you are still going to be the only way that it's going to change so if you hear this and you don't do it then i guess i can only say consider us enemies i'm sorry i fumbled that i'm sorry that was my bad um yeah uh were you done johanna yeah that's it i'm good Okay, I didn't hear I'm your signature saying, statement. <laughs> there's two narratives going on. One is that it's there's mass incarceration happening and it's all a mistake. The other is that it's modern day slavery and it's being done on purpose. Mm-hmm. If you're picking the mass incarceration, then you're trying to defeat the purposes that I'm here for. Make up your damn mind. And remember that abolition is the reason for a revolution. So we can finally know some peace. Peace. Rise up, rise up. Just lift your eyes up, let your wise rise up, see the signs of the times if it's time, rise up, rise up, when death and hell dwell among all God's people, when those we chose and trusted have become completely corrupted and inherently evil, when the feast that feeds you starves our father's children, when snuff porn and pedo forms begin to get top billing, rise up, when famine claims millions, when justice.